was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number 13. This is the podcast in which we traverse the troubles, triumphs, and titillating tribulations of the talented, timeless, traveling troubleshooter, James Bond 007. Thank you very much indeed for joining us in the cubbyhole. We welcome you inside with open arms. You are a valued part of our listenership, otherwise known as the Cubbies. For the uninitiated, we're also quite active on social media, so please do give us a like and follow on Facebook and Instagram. Just search our title, you should be able to find us, or we have the handle More Cubby over on Twitter. And we've really been enjoying your correspondence over the last few weeks, so do keep that coming through to us via email, rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Let us know any of your questions or Bond topics you'd like us to uh, talk about in future episodes. You'll have a chance to star in our Q Branch segment at the end of each episode. Now, in our last episode, we discussed Bond number 12, For Your Eyes Only, a gritty tale of revenge, duplicity, and Margaret Thatcher talking to a parrot. So how did the Bond series follow on from that? Well, this week it's another animal. It's the octopus. Yes, it's Bond number 13, Octopussy. So with me to discuss, it's the usual hosting team. Firstly, it's the man who always rolls a double six when he needs it. How does he do it? It's Adam. How do you do it, Adam? It's all in the wrist, Martin. It is all in the wrist, and it's not loaded dice in the slightest. I'm very well, thank you. I'm just thinking back to Max the Parrot at the end of uh, For Your Eyes Only and his little chat with Margaret Thatcher, and, and thinking it's a bit of a shame that he didn't also come back to have a little chat with Ronald Reagan, the US president. That would have seemed to be the natural sequel. Give it a kiss, give it a kiss. Well, I, I don't really go in for that kind of thing. Phil... You didn't like Max the Parrot. I, th- I feel that we have to address that because I had to edit it out of the last episode because it was too long. But Phil, what's your problem with Max? I'm not sure. It's just, yeah, it, it kind of frustrates me, does Max the Parrot. He's, um, he's, he's okay in small doses, but he gets a bit grating when he's uh, at the end uh, sort of chatting to Margaret. But, uh, but no, I, I can see that for light relief, that is still a very good scene. Did you get on better with the animals this week? Because there's an awful lot of animal action this week in Octopussy. Well, absolutely. This is literally Bond on Safari. So I was, I was much happier with this week's uh, efforts. Yeah, Bond is in more control of the animals in this film as well. Far better than previous. He's in surprisingly good control of the animals, but uh, we'll get on to that a little bit later. And secondly, it's the man who has a very good memory for faces and figures. And by figures, of course, I mean all the vital statistics for Bond car engines. It's Phil. How are you, Phil? Yes, very well. Thanks, Martin. And thank you to everybody that's been getting in touch with us on our social media channels. Again, as we do every week, just a quick few shout outs to people that have been getting in contact with us and liking our posts. So firstly, Neil Smith, who got in touch with us on email with his really impressive Bond collection of memorabilia. We'll also put those on Twitter in the near future for a really great collection. Um, to Shamir Rabji from Facebook, who was in touch with us just to say that he really enjoyed the Alan Partridge impressions. Um, and then a lot on Twitter as well. So Stuart Walter Smith, Shakespearean Not Stirred, Behind the Stunts, John Berry, Not Perfected Yet, Ben Wilson, Alblex, to Gel Nerd slash Chris, to Dr. Lisa Fennell as well, to James Pickup, Christopher Hyde. Tom Price, Frank McNeely, at more 7 please, The Spy Command, Trey Bond, Tim Guccione, and Richard Paul Shepard. And if we've missed anybody, then I do apologise. Obviously, we'll try and fit you into next week. Obviously, we've had so many people getting in touch with us on social media, but please do keep it coming. If you've got any questions, if you've got any things you want to know about the team, please do let us know. Okay, very nice. And for all of you Partridge fans, it's our first segment. It's over to Adam and Ellen for the film synopsis. Sorry, just me for now. Alan will be here very, very shortly. So, Octopussy, the 13th James Bond film, taking its title from the 14th and final James Bond book, the second of two short story collections written by Ian Fleming. 
John Glenn returns to direct his second consecutive film. He'll do five in total. And Roger Moore returns for his sixth and penultimate performance as James Bond, apparently lured back to the role by Albertar Broccoli in order to give the franchise consistency when faced with the imminent release of Sean Connery's return in the unofficial Never Say Never Again. So Octopus is released in June 1983, so still five years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout film performance in the action classic Tappin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Octopus is made on a budget of $27.5 million and it goes on to gross $187.5 million. And in October that year, when Never Say Never Again comes out, that grosses only $160 million. And so in the so-called Battle of the Bonds of 1983, Octopussy is the winner. So, to learn why it might have won, here's Alan Partridge. Trudging down the gun barrel, it's Roger Moore. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Armed with a ropey moustache, a leggy floozy, and a horse's arse, Bond blows up Fidel Castro's Grand National, then checks a toy plane into a gas station. Fill her up, please. All together now! All I wanted was a sweet distraction for the yeah, of that. A knife-throwing new romantic kills Pennywise the Clown, a Russian general overacts near a big board, and Bond annoys everyone at Sotheby's. He's welcomed to India by his own theme tune, and Nick's smooth criminal Kamal Khan's loaded dice to win a surprisingly heated game of backgammon. Spend the money quickly, Mr. Bond. Bond has a whirlwind tour of Indian stereotypes in a tuk-tuk chase. That'll keep you in curry for a few weeks. Indulges in some light sexual harassment at Kew Branch, then gets seduced by lightly tattooed gymnast Magda and knocked out by Indian odd job. After eating an urgent souffle and Bush took a trial sheep at Khan's palace, Bond witnesses a secret meeting between the smooth criminal and the overacting general. He escapes the next morning in the style of carry on up the jungle, telling a tiger to sit, a snake to hiss off, before Tarzan swinging it to safety. You have a nasty habit of surviving. Disguised as an unconvincing crocodile, Bond sneaks into the all-female floating palace of jewel thief and circus entrepreneur Octopussy, and sort of just chills there a few days before fleeing after a fight with a yo-yo. Over in East Berlin, Bond sneaks into the Cirque du Pussy train, which Khan and the Mad Russian are using to sneak an atomic bomb into the West. Tomorrow, I shall be a hero of the Soviet Union! Bond dresses as a monkey, then a knife thrower, inspires the train fight at the end of Paddington 2, hitchhikes with some fat Germans, nicks a car, and finally defuses the bomb dressed as a shaggy clown. Back in India, Bond and Octopussy and Q for some reason, you can handle this contraption, Q. It goes by hot air. Oh, then you can. Storm Khan's palace, grab onto his escape plane while Q sets up an orgy, send Indian odd job flying, and crash the smooth criminal into a rocky mountain. Then Bond pulls a sickie to treat Octopussy to his magic penis. Oh, James! The end. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Adam and Alan. Alan has his plaudits on social media, but I, I like Alan's impressions. They're my favourites, some uh, excellent ones in this film. Uh, so Octopussy, one of the longer James Bond films, but uh, no time to draw your breath, really. It seems to be constant action. I hadn't watched this one in a while, and I couldn't really remember much of it. Uh, and I thought maybe that was because it was boring, but Quite the contrary, it was uh, action-filled, and maybe I couldn't remember it because there are just so many things that happen. So I quite enjoyed Octopussy, and it was a really entertaining film. There were lots of silly elements that uh, Alan has just described, but in a way, your brain doesn't have any time to process those silly elements because, uh, because it's so entertaining. So what do you reckon, Phil? Where should we start with Octopussy? What were your impressions? Well, personally, I'm probably a little bit biased on this film because I absolutely adore it. I This was the one, of all the Bond films to go back to, this was the one I was looking forward to the most because, yes, I know that Roger Moore is a bit long in the tooth at this point and obviously the age is starting to show a little bit, but I just love it to bits. I, I don't know why, I think it's just because of the mix of action and the plot is so well honed. I just enjoy it so much. Again, it's one of those films where you don't have to have a back plot of what's happened in previous films. You can just go into it not having watched a Bond film at all. Like we mentioned last week with Fear Eyes Only, there are elements of Fear Eyes Only that you can overlook because the rest of the film is so good. 
and octopusy is exactly the same. There are stupid elements that you can overlook because the rest of it is so good. That's that opening sequence where you get the acro star going through the aircraft hangar is one of the best action sequences of the entire series for me because it's so suspenseful and so dramatic. It's just so, so well put together and so well thought out, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, I really like this one as well. Um, I think, ironically, for a film which is in part about dual smuggling, this, for me, is very much the flawed gem of uh, the James Bond series. There's a slightly uneasy mix of styles going on, um, in the sense that we are carrying over from For Your Eyes Only that sense of autumnal melancholy, I guess, in the tone of the film, the Cold War kind of coming to its conclusion you know the Russians are in disarray talking about disarmament and we've also got this idea that various characters are kind of haunted by their own history at this point but at the same time there's a very deliberate um, move on the part of the producers back towards the spectacle action humor blend of the spy who loved me and Moonraker and although I think the problems the film has largely stem from the fact that these two stylistic elements don't quite merge together taken individually it is the best film at portraying that sense of melancholy and the passing of time and the world order changing. It's second only to For Your Eyes Only in that sense. And in terms of doing the Roger Moore classic blend of action, humour and spectacle, I would again say it's only second to The Spy Who Loved Me. And so I think it's still a really fascinating and interesting film. Uh, yeah, so we kind of have two main villains in this film. We have uh, all of the mental Russian general, played by an equally mental Stephen Burkhoff, and then we also have Kamal Khan, played by Louis Jourdain. For me, I think Louis Jourdain steals the show, even though all of is mental. Um, I think his portrayal of Khan is excellent, just in the mannerisms, the way that he holds himself, uh, perhaps encapsulated by the backgammon scene. That's just an excellent bit of interplay between Bond being very suave, winning the game by stealing his loaded dice, but a villain who you really get a sense that Bond has got under his skin, both with outbidding him or trying to outbid him in the auction and then beating him at backgammon. So uh, what do you reckon to, to Khan? I'd agree. I think he, he delivers that sort of fine balance between sort of menace and sophistication in, in this role. He's particularly in the scene where they're in his um, you know, private mansion and obviously the Bond is his captor. And you get the scene with the sheep's head where also he just plucks the eye straight out of the socket and just starts eating it. Incidentally, apparently that was made from marzipan. It wasn't actually a real sheep's head um, for any sort of animal rights people watching. It wasn't real. You know, I think I think the way that he portrays the character, you know, the, the sense of, you know, threat and danger mixed in with the sense that he's he's very erudite. Yeah, Louis Jordan's a very interesting actor in that at this stage, 1983, he's been around for a very long time in cinema and he always referred to himself as, oh, I always play French stereotypes, which he kind of does. But interestingly, he, he's never a leading actor. He always plays the romantic um, second lead to uh, films which are largely about uh, leading female characters. So most famously in the 40s, Letter from an Unknown Woman by Max Ophuls. Uh, but he plays a really interesting and I think quite new type of villain in this, which is the playboy villain. He's not really a megalomaniac, nor is he really involved in like intelligence or, or sort of, you know, working for an enemy nation in so much as he is just this opportunistic jewel thief and this exiled Afghan prince, remember, who's kind of in this purely to make mischief and to make mayhem, which we haven't quite seen before. And it also gives him the fact that he is kind of exiled royalty, that element that he's not particularly phased by Bond. He's one of the few villains who is a snob and who is a wannabe gentleman and sophisticate, who doesn't feel like he is outplayed by Bond in the gentleman stakes. He is, of course, in the backgammon scene, another classic uh, callback to the great Goldfinger golf game. But also in that dining scene as well, it's the fact that he kind of outmaneuvers Bond in terms of his taste and his gastronomic taste. He's the one who dares eat the stuffed sheep's head. Uh, and in terms of the way he plays it, it, it harkens very much back to Hugo Drax. He has that sophistication, the same very relaxed, laconic delivery that Michael Lonsdale um, used so effectively. He has gifted some, some lovely little zingers in the screenplay as well. I think the one at the end of the, uh, the safari hunt where he's just sat on the elephant. Um, I think the line is something like, Mr. Bond is indeed a very rare breed, soon to be made extinct. So he's got a lovely little lilt the way he delivers those lines. There's a great playfulness to his performance. I do. I like the fact that Bond seems to be the only person in the films who can spot these villains cheating. 
like you mentioned Goldfinger there, Adam. Of course, Goldfinger also cheats at the the card game by the Miami hotel pool. So obviously cheating, but only Bond realizes. And again, it happens here. Surely everyone realizes he's rolling double sixes every time. It is very strange no one catches these people cheating, for sure. I mean, I guess in the golf game, it's easy enough. You might not notice odd jobs dropped ball down his trousers. But yeah, in this instance, it's, and if he's done this a lot of times in this club as well, presumably a lot of very wealthy, very well-to-do people of the British aristocracy being fleeced in that place, they must have wanted some kind of explanation or investigation at some point. I think you mentioned the animal rights people, Phil. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a real lamb's head. It was just the eyeball. The consistency was completely wrong for, for an eyeball. I think it may have been marzipan, according to the trivia. I wondered in that dinner party scene, it might be fanciful because Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is released the very next year, but I just wonder how much it would have influenced um, the banquet scene in Temple of Doom, which of course is also in India. It's at an Indian palace and, and they're served, I think it's some um, snake surprise and uh, the chilled monkey brain dessert as well. And we do know that Spielberg wanted to direct Moonraker and didn't, and the Indiana Jones films were his way of just doing a Bond film, but not. Yeah, I think you could be right. I think in a lot of examples in cinema are probably where, um, you know, directors take inspiration from others. And I think there's a lot of famous scenes that are probably lifted from other elements. I mean, probably Bond films themselves obviously lift certain elements from other films. Again, obviously we see in this one where the sort of the Tarzan leap to the jungle, which is obviously going directly back to the Tarzan films. And I don't think it's sort of anything wrong with that. I think it's just a case of, you know, being appreciative of what the media is and, and, you know, being appreciative of the source material. I'm surprised another film hasn't lifted Le Bon Surprise. Mm. That looks fantastic. What's in it? Ah, but then there would be no surprise, madame. Yeah, they never got as far as dessert at uh, Khan's Palace, did they? They just sort of left it after um, nobody really wanted to eat the sheep's head. Maybe it wasn't a bomb surprise. Roger Moore's just sat there thinking, I've seen this before. How about the other mental villain, the Russian general, Orlov? Very memorable. I said I didn't remember much from Octopussy, but that was one character I did remember was Orlov. What did we make of him, Phil? I think Stephen Burkov is, uh, as Orlov is a brilliant choice, and, and he does it with the... Um, with the so it, it basically becomes the pantomime villain, really. I mean, we don't necessarily see him throughout the film he's only really there as a cameo in many respects but just the fact of that kind of head swiveling lunacy that's sort of that's present throughout obviously Kamal Khan and Gabinda his chief henchman are, are part of the villainy of the film but obviously General Orlov is kind of the the glue that holds it together really because without Orlov you kind of don't really get the, the impression where Khan's plan will go to obviously Orlov kind of is the final piece in the puzzle for their kind of ambitions for what the megalomaniacal dream is for the film, really. Yeah, Burkhoff's performance is on a different planet in this film, isn't it? Apparently Barbara Broccoli cast him on the strength of seeing him in one of his plays in uh, London's West End, and his plays, if you don't know, are incredibly physical and big and demanding, and it's usually one man him playing all the parts, and he's definitely bringing some of that manic energy here. What interests me more about him is the way that Orlov is actually pitted, not against Bond, but against General Gogol, the head of um, the KGB, who we've seen in a few of these films. And of course, it also relates to the fact that this is the first time in a Bond film we've gone into proper John le Carré territory in the sense that we see Bond cross over Checkpoint Charlie. It's the first time again, like him for your eyes only, since the Connery era, that the Cold War plays such a pivotal role in a Bond film uh, and I really enjoy that dynamic and that final scene is fantastic when it's not Bond but it is Gogol who hunts down Orlov and um, you know tries to have him captured alive but has that lovely last little exchange where he just looks at him with absolute disgust calls him a common thief and a disgrace to the uniform so again we've seen Gogol flip sides in terms of whether he's a, with Bond generally speaking or against him generally speaking and this is the most interesting playing out of that in this film I think. And of course, brilliantly performed by Walter Gotell as well, obviously reprising the role of Gogol. And I think, you know, Gogol is another one of the great characters that's, that's often forgotten a little bit, but he is quite pivotal to the, um, to the progression of the plot, I think. 
Well, he plays a major role in that whole final um, elongated, I guess, suspense sequence. It's probably that whole chase, James Bond versus the bomb on the train, which is headed to the circus. It creates, again, a really classically Hitchcockian chase sequence. Hitchcock always talked about the importance of letting the audience see how much time is on the bomb and where it's at so that you have some kind of knowledge ahead of the characters and that you as the audience know the tension and you feel the suspense because you know how close everything is getting to, you know, to the countdown hitting zero. And that whole sequence is played pretty straight, even though there are a few moments of light relief with obviously Bond dressed as a clown, Bond nicking uh, a car from a uh, German woman who won't get off the payphone. But it's generally played as proper, elongated, stretched out suspense. You know, the fact that we've sort of been having the tension as a slow build and then suddenly the pot is off the stove, it boils over, everyone starts screaming. And, and then everything goes down to a deathly quiet as Bond defuses the bomb. It's a lovely handled uh, climax to that whole suspense sequence. In a way, I think there's a nice juxtaposition of the comedy with the seriousness. Uh, so that's why I can let go of the fact that Bond is in a clown outfit and it took him apparently 20 seconds to get in full makeup and, uh, and clothing. But I can forgive it because he's there's a real sense of desperation, actually, when he does get to the bomb and the, the soldiers are, have got him, but he, he desperately wants to get there and defuse it. See, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that whole, that whole ending. Yeah, everyone gives the film a bit of a go for dressing Bond as a clown, just being like, oh, James Bond, he's dressed as a clown, oh dear. But yeah, in context of that sequence, it's a brilliant choice because it's slightly surreal. But again, it shows proper spy work. He has to dress as a clown and he has to, even though he's down to the last few minutes, he has to put full makeup on, otherwise they're going to spot him immediately. I mean, we should perhaps uh, segue very briefly into Roger Moore's costumes in this film. We've seen him in some absolute crackers throughout, from spacesuit to Clint Eastwood poncho in uh, Moonraker, and of course the Lawrence of Arabia gear in Spy Who Loved Me. But he's really going all out in this one. There's the new romantic knife thrower, there's the, the monkey suit that he hides in on the train, there's of course the clown, not one but two lovely tuxedos. And let's not forget the speed in which he could get into those and out of those costumes as well. How on earth he got into that gorilla suit with no one noticing and then get out of it again before Gabinda manages to take its head off is something that is quite amazing. I mean, is Bond the greatest illusionist in the world and nobody is actually aware of it? You're, I mean, I don't, you guys know me well, I don't laugh out loud too often at films, but I did actually laugh out loud when he was in the gorilla outfit and he checks his watch when Khan mentions what the time is. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah, I love, I love the, the fact that Bond thinks when, you know, people might have the time wrong, when they are setting an atomic bombs countdown timer. That's probably the one time in your life that even if you were a bit tardy, you'd probably make sure you got exactly the right time at that moment. We should talk about as well the fact that Roger Moore's Bond always seems a, almost a little amused by the villains up to this point. Like, he, he's not properly angry at them. He is obviously taking his mission seriously, but he's almost like charmed, in a sense, by these villains. He always takes them with a bit of lightheartedness. In this one, that scene he has with Stephen Burkoff is all off in the train. He is really angry. It's a really interesting chat, that. And obviously going against a, a Burkoff, who is a very intense actor, there's a real sort of angry intensity to that scene, but I don't think we've really seen before. Leave that. Let's go. Let's stay. Sit on that box, hands on your knees. Come on, move! Why is that bomb on the train? Who are you? I'm British Secret Service. You should be more concerned about getting out of here alive. I am more concerned about an atomic bomb exploding on a US Air Force base. You surely can't be inviting a full-scale nuclear war. What happens when the US retaliates? Against whom? Our early warning system will rule out the possibility of that bomb having been launched from Russia or anywhere else. Everyone will assume, incorrectly, that it was an American bomb triggered accidentally. Oh, that would be the most plausible explanation. Europe will insist on unilateral disarmament, leaving every border undefended for you to walk across at will. And it doesn't matter a damn to you, I suppose, that thousands of innocent people will be killed in that accident of yours. Better than letting a handful of old men in Moscow bargain away our advantage in disarmament talks. On your feet, General. You're going to stop that train.
in previous films we've seen again Roger Moore is kind of it's very rare that his portrayal of Bond wherever loses his cool but obviously in this this moment obviously the stakes are so high I think that I think it's a very very well performed sequence obviously you know where Bond is kind of at his last options and he needs to work out you know how he's going to defuse the bomb and obviously he probably thinks obviously trying to talk all of down is probably the only way to stop it at this point just to, just to say as well with those final scenes um with the train stunts i think they are another progression of the action sequences we've seen before because obviously we've, we've mentioned in previous episodes where certain finales have been a little bit of a damp squib but in this one it's really really tense and really really heightens as it goes through yeah i think i was on a bit of a downer in our last episode for your eyes only was quite good uh, but i think we mentioned that i wasn't impressed by the action scenes uh, and I think you mentioned, Adam, that there wasn't a sense of it building up. Whereas here in Octopussy, you do get that sense that it builds up. Uh, and I think that's why this one was more entertaining and I found it, well, better. Can, can you do the official reviews, Martin, just where it's like the five stars? Quite good. <laughs> um, yeah, to pick up on those points, yeah, th there is some great stunt work in this. I know Phil is he's really enamoured of the opening sequence, and so I'll let him talk a bit more about that. But the other one I want to flag is he's actually after the battle at uh, Kamal Khan's palace when we have um, the aeroplane stunts. And again, it goes back to what we were saying about um, the best stunts in, this, uh, in the Bond films and in terms of suspending your disbelief. You know that it's not Roger Moore doing these ridiculous death-defying stunts. And indeed, if you look properly, you can see quite clearly that it's not Roger Moore holding onto that plane. But still, someone actually had to do it. Someone had to go onto that plane and hold onto it. And, you know, it, it is a really electrifying, death-defying thing to do. And it's one of, I think, the best aerial stunts we've seen up to this point. And it does remind me of back when Spectre came out. Um, it came out at the same time as, I think, Mission Impossible 5, which famously featured Tom Cruise holding onto the side of the plane as it, it takes off. Uh, and I, I know a few friends of mine said, oh, that, you know, they were virtually the same plot, those two films, that the Mission Impossible one was better. Uh, and okay, Tom Cruise is really hanging on to that plane and Roger Moore isn't. But that same stunt is in the Bond films and it's in the Bond films about 30 years beforehand. So... Glang, glang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang, glang, a lang, a lang, a lang, a lang. Nobody does it better. Bond did it first and Bond did it the best. Yeah, I totally agree, Adam. I am going to come on to the stunts a little bit more, but there was real jeopardy in some of the stunts they did. Just going back to the train sequence, there were two occasions where two of the stuntmen were actually nearly killed because they um, they in, inadvertently overlooked certain elements. So the scene where Bond is reportedly on the side of the train clinging on, um, it was stuntman Martin Grace who was less seriously injured because the stunt team hadn't accounted for a telegraph pole. Obviously, we see him where he's, he's dodging all the different obstacles. And at one point, obviously, he got his timing wrong and just caught a telegraph pole, but it actually broke his leg. And also in the scene where the car gets launched into the river, you actually see in the final take, one of the stuntmen in the boat was a little bit too far over. So if it had been any further across, he would have been flattened. So there is real jeopardy in these films. There's still at a point where, you know, kind of health and safety isn't really the top of the priority. There's a lot more Roger Moore eyebrow-ness going on in this film. And it particularly comes in in that he seems to constantly in this film be sneaking past windows where women are in a state of undress. He does it first time when he's creeping out of um, his room at Kamal Khan's palace and he creeps past Magda's bedroom and she just happens to be like taking off her sort of black garter and suspenders. And then he does it again where on the middle of the fight on the side of the train, he just happens to be climbing by Octopus's window while she's getting a massage. And Roger Moore, despite the seriousness of the situation he's in, always just takes a little moment to stop and, and have a little eyebrow raise and, oh, what's going on here? Lest we forget, of course, boob cam as well. Yeah, I was about to mention that, Adam. I think I had in my notes, Bond equals horny in this film. Just the eyebrow raises were incredibly uh, turned up, weren't they, from previous instalments? Yeah, they, they do seem to be quite uh, quite a lot more pronounced in this film. I don't know whether they were sort of uh, electrically operated, where just sort of at, at the command of Cubby Broccoli, that his eyebrows would just raise up, or I don't know if that was uh, in his contract. 
I guess at this point he's six in and he's having a lot of fun with it. Like I say, the, the action humor spectacle blend is really good in this, like second only to Spy. And I think these moments, even at their daftest, he gets away with them just about. But it is also true to say that John Glenn's handling of those suspense sequences, of the big stunty action sequences, and also of that undercurrent of genuine nasty violence in this film is also there. It's just down a little notch from for your eyes only. Thinking particularly of things like um, VJ Amritraj's as um, uh, demise at the hands of the uh, the buzzsaw yo-yo, the blue twilight, and of course getting that panic squawk of birds flying away. It's a brilliantly handled sequence and it brings home the violence of what's actually happened to him. But again, it blends just slightly uneasily with the more silly, nonsensical moments, I guess. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Adam. I think particularly, I think VJ is actually a brilliant ally as well to Bond. I think he's one of the best, probably forgotten quite a lot as well. But no, I think that that scene in it itself is a brilliantly shot and brilliantly emotional sequence, so particularly because of its simplicity, as you've mentioned, the fact that you don't really see any violence as such, with the exception of the the shine from the the yo-yo saw. But it's yeah, it's just so beautifully put together and and builds to that point. And then obviously, it's quite a somber moment when Bond returns to Q and Q himself is quite upset by it in many respects obviously he just says that he was alive when he found him yeah I think uh, yeah VJ does an excellent job considering it's his first film I think after his tennis career and um, we do follow him on Instagram as well so hopefully he's uh, he's listening but I do like his character and particularly with that gruesome death I mean that could have been Q couldn't it Q does play a bigger role in this and he was waiting by the lake that would have been horrendous wouldn't it if uh, Q would have met his demise with the uh, the yo-yo overall I really like Q in this film I like his little quips that he has annoyance with Bond there was one line that's right at the end of the scene that's quite easy to miss where he's where Q talks to VJ and says don't follow his bad habits or something which I, I thought was quite a nice little line but yeah I was impressed by Q uh, perhaps not so much by we get a new M of course in this film Robert Brown I think was a suitable choice but he doesn't quite have that mixture of anger and pride in Bond, but also being slightly annoyed at him. Uh, I don't think he does that quite as well as Bernard Lee's M. But I suppose there is a gap, isn't there, between Robert Brown taking over from Bernard Lee? Yeah, I, th- I think Robert Brown does quite a good job. It's pretty, I agree he's probably finding his feet in this film, and obviously he does go on to the living, or view to kill the living daylights for them, a license to kill. And I think we, we look back with fondness at Bernard Lee, where, again, I think probably Robert Brown's portrayal is often forgotten because, you know, it's he's not in it for as long as Bernard Lee was and he's, he's kind of in that difficult period between Bernard Lee and Judy Dench coming in. I always wondered, is he actually the same character as he is in The Spy Who Loved Me, where Robert Brown, I think, plays Admiral Hargreaves in that? We know that M, as played by Bernard Lee, was a naval admiral who was then elevated to the Secret Service. And so I've always sort of found it quite interesting to muse on whether actually it's the same character. He's just become M now. And that's why he's a little bit warmer and a little more understanding. Perhaps Bond and this new M have been in the Navy together and have known each other for a long, long time. Hence why they sort of know each other in The Spy Who Loved Me. And then it's the same character there who becomes M. On which note, should we also talk about the wasn't-to-be-in-the-end replacement for Miss Moneypenny, uh, Penelope Smallbone? Uh, it's an interesting little scene, this, and, and famous because apparently in a very famous outtake, Lois Maxwell referred to the character as Penelope Smallbush. Um, but again, just to hearken on about that sense of characters are getting older and history is catching up with them. Lois Maxwell at this point in the series, remember, is the longest serving and most consistent actor in the franchise. And so is this kind of a tip for that, that even the, you know, the stout and resolute, doughty Miss Moneypenny is perhaps soon for the, the scrap heap in a sense? It's, it's a sort of slightly melancholy scene, even though it's kind of played for laughs, I always think. Yeah, I think didn't Lois Maxwell suggest that she should perhaps play M in her later years? So she takes credit for them eventually going for a woman in Judy Dench later in the series. But uh, that, that would have been interesting if she'd have made that transition. I think it's a very interesting idea and, and you know, very good if it, if it inspired the ultimate casting of Judy Dench. But yeah, it, it would have been odd having done Moneypenny to then do M. I mean, Bond wouldn't know whether to be sort of respectful to uh, his superior or just try a little light flirting to worm his way out of trouble in that instance, I suspect. The, the light flirting would have come with Miss Smallbush, Smallbone. 
even you're getting it wrong. It's very easy done. On on the subject of uh, of actors getting older, did you hear it? Did you hear it in this film? The first appearance of our favourite sound effect in the whole series, Roger Moore's old man groan. I, lo I loved it. I, was, I knew it was in this film once, but I couldn't remember where it was. So half of me was, as well as making notes, just listening out for it. It's, it's such a ridiculous sound effect. Yeah, it's, it's an un unusual decision for, um, for the producer to leave that in, I think. The fact that they, and they then carry it on into A View to a Kill, where it's obviously much more pronounced. But I think, I think you can't really consider Roger Moore's films without the old man grown. I think they've become kind of his go-to sound effect. Incidentally, if you do want to play a fun game and if you are watching these films along with us, when you watch A View to a Kill, see if you can count the number of old man groans that are in it. I think it's about five or six. That number will certainly increase dramatically. <laughs> well, shall we talk about Maud Adams, uh, her return, of course, to the Bond franchise. She was killed off in The Men with the Golden Gun. What did we make of her performance here? Do we think, uh, uh, personally, I think maybe we didn't see quite enough of her the fact that she didn't really participate in her own action scene of her storming Khan's monsoon palace at the end. What did we think? I think maybe underutilized slightly, maybe cleverly linking together with her father and the uh, the book, which I'm sure Adam will talk about later. But uh, what do we reckon? Um, I think it was a, still a, a good choice from the uh, from the producers. They probably wanted, you know. Uh, don't really want to use the word mature actor, but an actor that was, you know, gave more gravitas to the role, I think. And, and I think Maud Adams does that. Again, she could be more pronounced in the role, but I still think she does a very dignified performance. It is great to see her back and given more to do than she has in The Man with the Golden Gun. But it is true, the disappointment is that she should really have more to do. Like, she should be more involved in that final fight. Having said that, this is, I think, one of the better of, uh, of the, the Bond heroines. It's interesting talking about the book, which we will in a moment. She kind of harkens back very specifically to the pussy galore of the novel, who, who is, of course, the leader of an all-female gang of cat burglars. But Maud Adams plays her with this incredible sense of power and an unapologetic sort of, you know, pride at what she's built up through admittedly criminal means but she brings such enigmatic sensuality to the role again which i think is just absolutely wonderful we glimpse her you know in snatches before we actually see her revealed full-on obviously kind of dr no like or blofeld like even and we also get a lovely callback to scaramanga in the man with the golden gun in terms of us not knowing if this will be our chief villain actually or not uh, as well as our main bond heroine something we don't fully pull off until Electra King in The World Is Not Enough. But again, she, she's sort of, there's a history to the character and there's a great well-defined backstory to her, which means she knows Bond. She's crossed paths with him before. They're both old campaigners and they can both therefore get under each other's skin. And she's questioning his psychology as a hired killer every bit as much as Scaramanga was using that to needle him. There's also to segue into the music a little bit. There's, uh, I know, Phil, you are not a fan of uh, this film's theme tune, All Time High. And I'm not going to argue it's one of the better Bond themes. But actually, John Barry uses it really well in this film. I think that when he orchestrates it so that it's slightly slower and it underpins those great scenes between Bond and Octopussy in the floating palace, I think it brings out that real sense of melancholy and of, of time having passed and a sadness, really, that these slightly older characters are still having to go around the world putting themselves at risk. Yeah, I must admit, I, I am quite vocal in my dislike of Rita Coolidge's theme for the, for the film on All Time High. I'm, I think it's just, I'm not sure if it's just, it feels quite weak compared to the previous films. But no, I do agree, John Barry's work with the instrumental score is beautiful. There is quite, a, I do agree, there is quite a sentiment of, you know, not quite lost, but of the fact that these are kind of characters that are, are advancing in age and obviously that is reflected in the in the, the theme tune itself we've spoken about things being influenced or influencing other films and all-time high is in ted um so i think that settles the argument phil it is it is a great theme tune um i also like the uh bond tune that vj plays in india perhaps links together with uh, connery coming back in never say never again and they're trying to assert themselves this is the real bond bond even recognizes his own theme tune 
Yeah, I always find it slightly odd that Bond recognises his own theme tune. Is it? Does he just know, therefore, that that's his theme tune? I mean, maybe it's just a random, he thinks it's a random musical code. But it is very odd, almost like perhaps he insists on his theme tune being played, you know, just in real life, where, you know, he's, he's got seconds to diffuse a bomb. No, I'm only going to do it if someone plays my theme tune. So maybe every 00 agent just has their own individual theme tune. So 009 had a clown theme just because he's dressed as a clown. Maybe that's, maybe obviously Bond's got his own sort of more revered theme tune that everybody can recall. It's just, we don't know the other 00 theme tunes. Surely it'd have been more appropriate if VJ Amritraget had just played on the, the state charming flute, the, uh, the Wimbledon theme. Maybe, I mean, that would surely have been a bit more appropriate to the situation. Oh, that's Wimbledon. Oh, it's VJ Amritraj. He works for MI6 now. I always think they missed a trick not using a bit more of his tennis skills. I, I kind of, in my mind, sort of envision him there with Racket having to, like, bounce a load of grenades over a net or something like that. Yeah, of course, in previous films, Bond has been quite good at all manner of sports. So, I mean, he could have just had a little session, couldn't he, with VJ? <laughs> Yeah, you get the feeling Q could have probably developed exploding tennis balls as well, that you just sort of you fire towards uh, the enemy vehicle. Well, you should absolutely have been writing this film, because why didn't they do that? That would have been so perfect and so hilarious. That's, that's an absolute opportunity missed here. I don't know if we want to mention it as well, but do we want to talk about Gabinda, kind of Kamal Khan's right-hand man? Because he's quite pivotal in terms of his role as well. Is he pivotal? Well, I would I would say so. I think he's a very effective henchman. Would you not agree? Because he's he's very much physically imposing, and he, he kind of does whatever Khan tells him to do. You know, he's he's very much a ruthless henchman. I think what I do like about um about Gabinda is is uh, in Kabir Bedi's performance, he channels a lot of. We've talked about the physicality of Bond villains before, but actually, he does most of the work in this with his eyes. They're sort of almost seem constantly bulging and straining and bloodshot. I think Govinda is very much Indian odd job. I mean, down to the use of distinctive headwear and, and crushing the implement that has been used to thwart his boss in the, in the gaming stakes, in this case, the loaded dice, which presumably Khan wasn't very happy about uh, when, when Govinda sees to them. He, he sort of thought, well, why have you done that? Uh, okay, it hasn't worked this time. I could have used them again. You mentioned in the Goldfinger episode, Adam, that you tried to crush a golf ball. Have you tried it with the dice? I presume it's a bit easier. It's a bit easier in this case because you've got two dice, so you can sort of use their strength against each other. Uh, but I haven't managed yet to crush a pair of, uh, of dice. No, it, it hasn't happened, I'm afraid. Going back to Gabinda, I did quite like the, the, the comedy moment when they're leaving the circus early, Khan and Gabinda, and then the car briefly doesn't start and they both look at each other. I thought that was a lovely moment. Yeah, it is right to pick out some, some lovely uh, comedy reactions from uh, Kabir Bidi. There's the other one in the final fight sequence when Khan says to him, go out there onto the plane and get him. And he just goes, out there? You madman, I'm not going out there. Going back to more serious stuff, one scene we haven't mentioned, which I do really want to, to give a, a check to, is, um, is the first scene after the title song, which is The Murder of 009. And again, we talked a little bit about people have a go at the, the clown costumes in this film and, and people perhaps out of context thinking it's a bit ridiculous. But in context, those clown costumes work. And in that sequence in particular, I think it works absolutely brilliantly. The clown outfit gives it a sense of the surrealness of the man with the golden gun as well, alongside that violence of for your eyes only, which whereas it was played for kind of oddness and ridiculousness in Golden Gun. Here, it actually contrasts really nicely with the threat of what's going on. And that final sequence where he just collapses dead at the British Embassy and the Fabergé egg falls out of his hands, it's a lovely little closing shot to that sequence. Yeah, I'd agree. It builds attention from the very start. And also, not to forget, obviously, the two twin henchmen in this, who I incidentally didn't realise were twins. I actually just thought it was the same actor kind of duplicating the same part. I never actually knew they were genuine twins. But the menace that they kind of produce throughout the film and obviously Bond has to overcome them later on in an act of revenge. Again, it's that kind of that henchman of how is he going to defeat when, the, partly because there's two of them, but also because they themselves have their own deadly skills with the knife throwing. Yeah, when I was a youngster, I thought that the clown at the beginning was Roger Moore because it's hard to make out his face under the, the makeup. Uh, so I had my own partridge moment where I was thinking, oh my God, he's dead. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? No! 
neither have I, actually. Okay, we'll take a look now at the cars and gadgets. So over to Phil. What did we have for Octopussy? Yes, thanks very much, Martin. So this week at Octopussy, we are really getting into um, a lot more car and gadget territory. Obviously, we've mentioned in previous films, certainly in Fear Eyes Only, it was pared back a little bit. Interestingly enough, the majority of the cars that Bond actually has in this film, he pretty much steals from people. We'll come on to that, but I just thought I'd go through them kind of in order of, of the vehicles that we see. So from the very start, obviously Bianca and Bond both drive the Range Rover convertible. Now, this was actually a coach-built vehicle made by Rapport London. So it was designed for hunting in the middle of the desert. So it had a much bigger rated V8 engine. The back was completely stripped out and removed, designed for shooting. So you could actually have a clear view of the prey you wanted to shoot. And obviously we see that connected to the back of the trailer, which houses the fake horse's backside. And of course, the Acro Star. Now, to achieve the, the sequence where it flies through the hangar, the stunt coordinator, a chap called John Richardson, actually stripped the back of an old Jaguar out and then got the shell of the Acro Star connected to a long pole. So what they did, so they could still film with Roger Moore in the jet as it flies through the hangar, the scene was actually done with the car driving at high speed through the middle of the hangar with the Acro Star attached to the top of it so that it gave the impression it was flying. So obviously after that point, they could then edit out the pole and they used obstacles and soldiers to hide the car driving through. Incidentally, the Acro Star is still not in production, but it's actually in a restaurant in Clearwater in Florida and actually hangs from the ceiling. Moving on further into the film, obviously we see that VJ uses a supplied tuk-tuk from the Secret Service. Instantly, this was built by Pinewood Studios as well and was built on the frame of a superbike engine. So performance was pretty much doubled from what you'd expect from a normal tuk-tuk and it could hit speeds up to 70 mile an hour. As we've already mentioned, kind of Bond, to get to where he needs to be, is kind of reliant on actually stealing people's cars. So the first one that he takes is... General Orlov's Mercedes-Benz, which is a 280S from 1968. So he has to basically get onto the railway line once the tyres are punctured. Now, to do this, the production team had to basically redesign the suspension, drivetrain, brakes, and the wheels, because you can't just drive a car on its steel rims onto a railway line. This wouldn't have worked. Incidentally, as well, that scene was actually not shot in East Berlin at all. It was filmed at the glamorous location of the Neen Valley Railway, in Cambridgeshire, which is still going today. I'm delighted to say that from August of 2020, the Neen Valley Railway will reopen to the public. But no, that was where they filmed that entire sequence. The other car that I wanted to come on to as well is one that kind of gets overlooked and often forgotten in the entire Bond franchise, but is actually one of the greatest cars of all time. It's the 1981 Alfa Romeo GTV6 that Bond steals towards the very end of the film. This had the wonderful 3.2-litre V6 engine. It leads to one of the great action sequences as well, where Bond is pursued by the German police, and obviously we then see it go through the, uh, the American airbase. Going on to the gadgets, we've already kind of mentioned the yo-yo buzzsaw, which is used to great effect, sadly on VJ, but also to nearly kill Bond. You know, it's a great design from, again, from the minds of the Pinewood design team. And also the, um, the acid pen and the listening device, which connects to the um, tracker and the bugging device in the Fabergé egg. The other main device that's used is obviously the Seiko LCD TV watch and tracker. So again, Seiko returned for the fourth film as sponsors. And obviously this is where we see the slightly problematic scene of Bond zooming in on the, uh, the lab assistant. And of course, where he uses it to monitor where Kamal takes Octopussy. So that's a really, really quick run through kind of the gadgets and cars that we used. Phil, have you taken a backhand from the Neem Valley Railway or something? There's a lot of publicity for them in amongst that. I will put this out as a disclaimer. I have not been paid to promote the Neen Valley Railway under any circumstances. I just happened to be uh, having a quick browse on their website. So the Neen Valley Railway are still in operation, but they do appreciate donations from the public. So if you, if you you're, bloody, looking... you're bloody doing it again, Phil. You're saying donate to them now. What's what is this? We're not we're not in the pocket of the Neen Valley Railway. Yeah, unless they want to pay us. Yeah, unless unless they actually genuinely do want to give us some money. Yeah, in which case we'll mention them every show. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's what I'm kind of alluding to. If the Neen Valley Railway representatives are listening and you do want to get involved and, you know, maybe help us out a little bit, get in touch. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm one for plugging. 
we'll, we'll tweet them. We'll tweet them. Into the, I was just thinking the, the amount of train action that Bond gets throughout this film series. It's, it's amazing he hasn't run into Michael Portillo at some point. My Bradshaw tells me that if you cross the Iron Curtain at this point, there's a rather lovely circus on both sides. That's you plugging your own work, Adam. <laughs> Outrageous. I, I, I haven't worked on that for years. Okay, so uh, over to Adam now. Buy the book 007. What are the links with the novel? Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. Just took a few seconds, Q. Thank you very much. So, uh, once again, this film adapts two short stories from one of Fleming's collections. In this instance, his final uh, posthumously published selection, Octopussy and the Living Daylights. All four of these kind of published after he died because they're slightly more experimental, I guess, in structure. And so don't really fit in with uh, the rest of his Bond writings very easily. But we adapt two stories from uh, this collection. We'll start with the title story, Octopussy, which actually pretty much works his way into the film verbatim as the backstory that Octopussy gives for her father when she first meets Bond at the Floating Palace. So the whole story is narrated in flashback uh, by Major Dexter Smythe, whom Bond has met in uh, Kitzbühel in Austria. Now, Smythe, as uh, is said in the film, is a World War II hero who, after the war, found a stash of Nazi gold with a mountaineer whom uh, Smythe killed in order to claim all the loot for himself. And Bond is sent to track him down when the body of this mountaineer thaws 15 years later. Smythe is when Bond finds him an alcoholic uh, who is fishing every day near a coral reef where he has made a friendly pet octopus whom he has nicknamed Octopussy. And uh, after hearing Smythe's story in flashback, Bond does decide, as Octopussy mentions in the film, to leave the Major, commit suicide and spare his reputation rather than return with Bond to England, as was his mission uh, in order to face trial. It is Octopussy, the octopus itself, who actually ensnares him and drags Smythe to his death. Now, the very interesting thing about this, actually, which doesn't survive to the film, is the identity of the mountaineer Smythe killed, which is, in fact, Hans Oberhauser. And in the short story, it is a father figure to James Bond when Bond was orphaned in his youth. And this survives pretty much verbatim into the much later Bond film Spectre, in which Ernst Stavro Blofeld was the biological son of uh, the same Oberhauser, the same mountaineer who looked after Bond after him being orphaned. The other short story that we adapt is The Property of a Lady. And this is a short story Fleming wrote for the Sotheby's magazine. And again, it survives pretty much intact in the film. It is the sale of a Fabergé egg at Sotheby's called The Property of the Lady. But the context is very different because in the short story, it's a double agent they've identified called Maria Freudenstein, who is selling the Fabergé egg. And the British director of the KGB has attended the auction in order to up the bid, in order to pay her for her services. And so Bond is there not actually doing the upping of the bid, but actually casting his eye around the auction room so that he can identify the secret British director of the KGB. The only other thing really to say is that uh, actually Kamal Khan's reaction to losing the backgammon game to Bond, i.e. spend the money quickly, Mr. Bond, is lifted verbatim from the novel Moonraker, when Hugo Drax, Sir Hugo Drax in the book, loses to Bond at Bridge when he and M take him on at the Blades Club. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, Adam. So we'll move on now to That's Not Okay Anymore. This section is where we look at the non-PC areas of the film. We can only start really with one place, which is Roger Moore's line of keeping the Indians in curry, stereotypical racist tones there. Maybe also the Indian culture done a slight disservice with Bond's chase through the Indian streets and carnival scenes that we see. Uh, I mean, we don't even get genuine Indians performing some of those stunts. We get uh, a young Mark Heap, the British comedic actor, one of his first roles as a fire juggler in that carnival atmosphere. A quick appearance there that you may have missed. I feel like they, they did have the Indian setting uh, and we had the obligatory shot of the Taj Mahal at the beginning when Bond arrives in Delhi, but we don't really see any kind of genuine Indian culture, I don't think, which uh, perhaps you might say is uh, one flaw of this film. Yeah, the fact that Bond is in India and yet he seems to be hanging out in exclusively white locations, like the sort of club where we're playing backgammon, like the two palaces owned by white people, one admittedly a sort of slightly French-skewing Afghan prince. 
uh, and of course his hotel as well, which, which doesn't seem to have uh, that many actual Indian people in it, uh, aside from um, the, the lady who shows Bond to his room and is quite clearly angling for a go on his magic penis. Well, yeah, and, uh, and segueing through Bond's magic penis, so to speak, we go to the, the sexism of this film as well. The liquid digital display of the, of the woman's breasts in Q's workshop. And we could say in general, Bond, as I've mentioned, is fairly sleazy in this film. Something that you could easily forgive, I suppose, based on the, the action and entertainment elsewhere. But it does seem like every single woman in this film wants to go on Bond's magic penis and his lines are not particularly great. Yeah, and it is a bit disappointing after For Your Eyes Only, in which actually there was, cl- there was quite a clever negotiating of um, you know, Bond's advancing years and, and the women all being a bit younger. And th- there always seemed to be a clear reason and progression towards the ones that he does sleep with. Whereas in this one, yeah, there, there is a little bit of arbitrariness. Uh, yeah, then finally we get the, the scene with Bond and Octopussy where he is slightly forceful, let's say, in his first kiss. And I mean, we, we know that they do have a history, they have a background, these two characters. But we as the audience, we don't really see that background, we just get quickly told what it is. So it does seem a little bit like their relationship gets rather intense, rather fast in that scene. Not particularly honourable actions there by Mr Bond. Hang on, do you not want to mention the German stereotyping of the two people in the car who just like seem to be presenting vice beers and, uh, you know, sausages to him when he's hitchhiking? Yeah, I, I did forget about those two. Um, they, they were quite lovable, though. It's a, it's a lesser crime, and they are helping him out when a lot of people didn't. I mean, those young Germans just drove off and left him. I mean, you know. Did Actually, I did quite like those moments where Bond is kind of taken out of the spy world and people who don't know him, like those youngsters, just making fun of him by pretending to pick him up. I did quite like that. Yeah, it was a nice, lovely little touch, isn't it? Oh, yeah, let, let's have a little game with this old geezer who's running around dressed as a new romantic. They'd feel awful if a bomb had actually gone off and then someone had told them afterwards, and if they'd only given him a lift. Okay, so let's go over to Q branch, i.e. the questions branch. So it's your questions, your discussion topics, from you, the listeners, uh, what have you got for us this week? Uh, what have we got, Phil? So one was from Neil Smith, who asked us a couple of questions on email. So I guess perhaps Adam and Martin will be able to elaborate on this. But the first one was, how many Bond films did Connery wear a toupee in? Um, I'm happy to field this one. I did, have to, I did have to go and look this up. So when I first heard this, I always thought that the two official films he wore a toupee in where you only live twice and diamonds are forever, for the very simple reason that it's quite obvious that he's wearing a toupee in those films. After a bit of digging, and digging rather, and there are some conflicting accounts on this, the answer is apparently all of them, but not not in all cases a full toupee. So apparently when he came to do Dr. No, he was already receding uh, at the sides of his hair, and so he wears a partial side toupee in, I believe, uh, Dr. No and From Russia With Love. And then actually, because um, the hair on top is starting to recede as early as Goldfinger, from then on in, he's on full toupee. So actually, he's wearing a full or at least partial toupee in every single Bond film he does. Is that why he faces the dragon tank full on in Doctor No? Because if he goes side on, it'll singe that, uh, that lovely toupee. Yeah, well, that, that, does, uh, that does explain it, absolutely. And the second question that came as well was, going back to Moonraker... Are we aware of the famous Mandela effect regarding Dolly's braces? And do we, do we actually remember having them in the film itself? Well, I had to do a bit of research for this one as well. People who don't know, the Mandela effect is where there's a memory, a group memory that's false. So many people have the same memory of something that never actually happened. Uh, Mandela, coming from Nelson Mandela, many people think he died in prison and they remember kind of odd specific details of the news report of him dying and many people many Bond fans think that Dolly had braces um, I personally I when I was re-watching this one I was half expecting her to have braces but I don't think I have any specific memory of her wearing them but it does seem to be the obvious joke doesn't it that the girl would have a mouthful of metal and that's why she falls in love with Jaws uh, so maybe people are just kind of filling in the joke uh, themselves did you remember braces Adam? No I never remembered braces uh, yeah I think you're absolutely right I think I think it's a combination of um, you know everyone anticipating that that was the joke with uh, perhaps the fact that she's wearing very thick rimmed glasses as well I looked into this, apparently there was some kind of publicity, early publicity in Finland, 
in which the, she is seen wearing braces. And no one's ever really been able to find this, but there's a suggestion it's somehow made its way to the UK's publicity and that perhaps people are remembering the advert rather than the film itself. Uh, okay, thanks, guys. So the final question as well is one to all three of us. And it comes from Twitter from the James Bond July Challenge from Time to Bond 007. If we could pick one Bond actor, alive or dead, that we would like to have dinner with, who would it be and why? So for me, if it was just one of the actors, it would be Desmond Llewellyn, just to ask him whether he actually came up with all those brilliant Q inventions or if it was, you know, kind of on the part of the production team only. I mean, I think in fairness, if we're if we're saying dead, we'd we'd have to say Roger Moore. I mean, I mean, dinner with uh, Sir Roger, I think, would be an amazing experience, and just so much to talk to him about. If we're talking alive, I actually think Grace Jones. I think she'd be a phenomenal dinner companion. You'd no idea where that night was going. Yeah, no, I can't top that answer. I think Roger Moore certainly for going for someone who's deceased. Uh, in terms of alive, no, I'm not sure. Would you, Martin, would you actually, in fact, uh, go for Hervé Villachez? That, that would certainly be a very interesting night time. I was, I was going to say, it might, it might depend on where the dinner was being held and uh, how good his knowledge of the local um, nightlife was, shall we say. See, I'm very surprised nobody's come back with Max the Parrot. I'm quite surprised nobody came up with that suggestion. But uh... why, why would they? All the people you could have, you want the parrot? You've gone too far the other way on Max the Parrot now. We loved him, Phil, but we're not going to have dinner with him. No, I'm just saying there's been a lot of, you know, we've waxed lyrical about Max the Parrot in the previous episode. I didn't know if he was high on our guest list. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the show. But before we have our outro song, we go over to the quiz and it's Adam's honours this week. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Thank you very much. And of course, your quiz this week is called Octoquizzy. Conveniently, there are eight actors throughout the Bond series who have appeared in six or more films. I'm going to go between you. All you have to do is name one of them. I'll give you three lives each. So if you can't name one or you get one wrong, you will lose a life. Either the first person to lose three lives is out. Or if once we've named all eight, someone has named more than the other, obviously they win. Or, if you have four each, we will go to a tie-break. So all I'm looking for are the eight actors. And to be fair, we've mentioned pretty much all of them throughout the recording of this podcast. The eight actors who have appeared in six or more James Bond films. We'll flip a coin, or in this case a pen, to begin. Um, Martin, do you want heads or tails? I'll go heads. Heads it is. Do you want to go first or second? Uh, I'll go second. I'll let Phil go first. All right, you're going to go second. So, Phil, any of the eight actors who have appeared in six or more Bond films? Well, there's an obvious choice. Desmond Llewellyn is Q. Yep, that is correct. Uh, he holds the record still. He has appeared in 17 James Bond films. So, a point to Phil. Martin, we go back to you. Seven remaining. Roger Moore. Yep, absolutely. Roger Moore, seven. And we'll be, we're moving on to his last one next week. Back to Phil. Uh, Bernard Lee. Yep, Bernard Lee, he starred in 11 consecutive James Bond films. He is the third most prolific actor in the series. So, 2-1 to Phil Martin, we're back with you. Uh, Sean Connery. Yep, of course, Sean Connery, six official Bond films, seven of course counting, which we don't, never say never again. So, two all, you're halfway through the list. Back to Phil. Okay, well, I'll go for Lois Maxwell. Yep, still the second most prolific actor in Bond history. 14 films rocked up. So Phil moves to three. Martin, we're back with you. Three to go. I'm thinking I should have gone first because I'm struggling now. Um... So, I'll, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, two of these, they play the same character in all of their appearances. And the other has played two characters across the series. But, uh, I'll get, I don't think he has, but I'll guess Sir Freddy, Jeffrey Keane. You are correct. He's on there. He does six. He is in every film from uh, The Spy Who Loved Me through to The Living Daylights. He appears at the very end of that. So, yeah, that's correct. Well done. Uh, I thought that was the one you might struggle with. So, three all, two to go. Phil, can you get one of them? The actor that's probably played the two characters, is that not Walter Gattel as General Gogol and in Thunder, Thunderball or Diamonds Are... No, Diamonds Are In. From Russia With Love. 
He is the head of, yes. uh, from Russia with Love, the head of um, Spectre Security. You are correct, yes. Walter Gattel has done seven in total. The same six as uh, Jeffrey Keane, Spy Who Loved Me To, Living Daylights, and then from Russia with Love as well. So, Martin, can you get this last one? No, I can't think. I'll, I'll have to pass. That's a pass. Phil, can you get the win with this one? Uh, um, it's not Sean... I can't remember his name. The guy who also voiced Scott Tracy. The guy who's Shane in... Rimmer. Shane Rimmer. Yeah, Shane Rimmer, yeah. Is it Shane Rimmer? Uh, it is not Shane Rimmer, I'm afraid, uh... no. Uh, I, I think so. So, I mean, technically it would pass to Martin because you, you've got lives left. What we could do, though, if neither of you can get this, is as Phil is 4-3 ahead, we could declare Phil the winner and I put you out of your misery. Oh, oh, hey, hey, me, me, can I... Phil, can do, I do you think you've got it? Can I steal? Yeah, let's see if you can stick. Yep, go on. Well, I'm sure it's Judy Dench. It is Dame Judy Dench played M in eight films, the last eight. So Phil claims it. I even name dropped her in the earlier in the podcast, didn't I? I was going to say everyone got mentioned in it apart from Jeffrey Keane, who you got. So I was like, well, that's the one no one will get. But Phil, well done. You have won the Octa Quizzy. So you get to choose our outro song. Thank you very much. Well, there can only really be one song that we can go to. Obviously, Rita Coolidge sang on an old time high originally. But really, it was Mark Wahlberg and Seth MacFarlane as Ted that made it their own in the film of the same name, Ted, of course. A great choice, Phil. Um, I apologise to VJ. I'd have gone for the Wimbledon theme tune if I'd have won. <laughs> of course. Okay, so uh, that's the end of this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed our summary there, our review of Octopussy. Next up, we'll have episode number 14, where we'll take a look at Roger Moore's final outing as Bond in A View to a Kill. Plenty of old men groans to look forward to in that episode. And it's a view to a kill, so you know what that means. It's Walken. He's here. He's crazy. In a Bond film. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. Yes, indeed. Him. Him as well. Uh, so uh, we'll see you. Hopefully we'll see you all next week. That's about it for this episode. Do keep in touch with our social media. If you've got any questions or any topics you want, to, want us to talk about, we'll try and get those into our Q-Branch segments. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Uh, this is the theme song from the movie Octopussy. All I wanted was a sweet distraction for an hour or two. Had no intention to do the thing. Still better than Katy Perry. Funny how it always goes with love when you don't look, you find. But then we're two of a kind. We move as one. We're in all time. You suck. Get off the stage. Oh, come on. Give him a chance. <laughs> <laughs>